Thank you, worship team. It is well with my soul. What a great hymn. I hope that you can say that this morning and mean it and know it and experience that it is well with your soul. It's a great hymn. You know the story behind it. Uh, what, a, uh, what a wonderful story and what wonderful words H.G. Spofford gave us in this hymn. Well, it's a pleasure to be here at Rock Point and to see so many people here and to just rejoice in what God uh, is doing uh, at this church uh, through Ron's ministry and the ministry of the staff and the worship team and all of you who uh, have a part in uh, the Rock Point Church. And I count it a privilege and a joy to be able to uh, be with you this morning and to share from God's Word. And uh, I just uh, am very thankful and honored by uh, the invitation. You know, this is a great time of year. June, uh, there's a lot that's happening uh, in June. Uh, you know, back in New England, we would say, what is so fair as a day in June? But of course, this is Texas, and we're just getting ready to come into our wonderful, pleasant summer season. <laughs> but, uh, there's a lot going on. There's uh, graduations and weddings, and uh, boy, you know, I'm grateful that all of our children are out of school and having graduations, but uh, boy, they're fun events, and, and uh, was with a pastor yesterday and just did a wedding, and Oh, there's a lot going on. And, of course, don't forget, uh, we have our tax rebates coming. Yeah, I had a friend of mine ask me, he said, what are you going to do with your tax rebate when, when it comes? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to fill my car up with gasoline. <laughs> if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 20. Matthew, Chapter 20 will be our passage this morning for our scripture reading, and it will be the text of our message as well. Matthew, the 20th chapter, beginning at verse 1, and reading through verse 16. Matthew, chapter 20, beginning at the first verse, and reading through verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, perhaps you can look on with a neighbor, and if not, then uh, just to hear the word of the Lord. May it speak to our hearts this morning. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked him, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, And you have made them equal to us who were born the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. 
Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Notice again verses 6 and 7 with me. About the eleventh hour he went out, and he found still others standing around. Why have you been standing here, Jesus says, all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And Jesus says in his story, he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So the last will be first, and the first will be last, it says in verse 20. The eleventh hour. It's an interesting term. We usually associate it with one final chance, one final desperate plea. The dictionary tells us that this expression means the last possible moment for doing something. When a person on death row gets a call from the governor and it's 1159 and his life is suddenly spared, that's the 11th hour. Or when it's the bottom of the ninth and it's five to four and the losing team hits a home run with the bases loaded, that's an 11th hour win. Last summer, Film star Leonardo DiCaprio produced and directed a documentary about global warming and the crises facing our natural environment. It was entitled simply, The Eleventh Hour. Turn mankind's darkest hour into its finest, the ad said, promoting the film. Now, it's safe to say that not a lot of good things happen in the eleventh hour. Usually nothing happens. It's too late, the die is cast, the jig is up, and all hope is gone. It's not only too late, but it's too little too late. That's the eleventh hour. Only a miracle changes anything for the good during the eleventh hour. Only something highly unlikely. Only something totally unexpected. Only an act of mercy. Only a gesture of grace. Only a pleasant surprise is going to change anything and affect anything in the eleventh hour. But sometimes, sometimes in the eleventh hour it happens. And it takes us completely by surprise. The unexpected, even the impossible, becomes reality. And that's what our message is about this morning. It's a story about some unemployed workers who were getting ready to head home without finding a job. But this time at the 11th hour, at the last moment when change is possible, these men found work. But my friends this morning, we're going to see that they found more than a job. These men discovered grace. Now, to fully understand the meaning and the application of Scripture, one must place it in its proper context. In this case, that means noticing what has been said by Jesus just prior to this story that he tells. In verse 27 of Matthew 19, if you'll notice it with me, it says that Peter asked Jesus directly, as was his habit, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus, in his answer to Peter, promises thrones and the authority to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he adds, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. That's the end of chapter 19. And then he launches into this story in chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. And Jesus tells a fascinating story, a parable, and he told many of those that both reinforces and beautifully illustrates his point about God's kingdom and God's grace. It's a winsome story that is worth understanding, it's worth remembering, and it's worth applying to our lives and to our relationships. I call this 
the 11th hour, because that's when this story really gets interesting. It, what ha- it's what happens then in the 11th hour, in the closing moments of the day, as the sun begins to set, when all hope appears lost, when the heartless embrace of despair envelops, it's what happens then, in that 11th hour, that reveals so very much about us, about you and me, and about God. And I'd like to invite you to join me as we look at the account. The first thing I want to notice from our passage this morning is God's ways. If you're taking notes this morning, you may want to just make a note. God's ways. It has been said, and accurately so, that God is a debtor to no person. The owner of the vineyard, who symbolizes God in this story, reminds the early workers of the argument that, or the agreement rather, that he had reached with them concerning pay. He has done what he promised them. They have been paid what they agreed to accept. They have been treated justly. But still, despite that, they are discontent, as we've read, and they are murmuring because the late workers, those who were hired last, got treated with kindness and generosity. In the eyes of the early workers, the late workers have received unfair advantage. They were treated not better, but the same. Now, they got the exact same pay as the early workers. But the early workers object to this. Notice verse 12. They protest and they say, These men who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who are borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now, look at the owner's response. It's very interesting. In verse 13, he answers one of them and he says, Friend, it's a mild rebuke. He's not angry. He's not upset. He addresses this worker as friend. Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. And then notice what the owner says, because this is significant and it is instructive to the parable. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Don't I have the right to do what I want? The landowner is God in this story. And the landowner says, don't I have a right to do what I want to do with my money, with my resources? God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. And He does exactly what He wants, when He wants to do it, and for the reasons that He alone decides. God is often inscrutable. He's unfathomable. His ways are past finding out. The Bible tells us that our ways and our thoughts are not His And they're different from his thoughts and his ways. How? Isaiah says, because his thoughts and his ways are far above our own. And that's a good thing for us. Because we most always don't know what God is doing. And we most always think that he's doing something he's not. And we often think that what he is doing, in fact, is not what he's doing at all. We don't know the way that God works. Usually we have no idea. We don't have a clue as to how God and why God is doing what He's doing. It's a mystery to us. When this landowner, what he does makes no sound business sense whatsoever. We need to note that. No responsible and experienced business person would ever do such a thing. It just isn't realistic. He'd be bankrupt. He'd be out of business. It made no sense to anyone logically as a sound labor practice. Well, any businessman would tell you that you'd have a union action faster than you could say Jimmy Hoffa. The logical and the reasonable and the prudent person would be aghast at such a thing that the landowner is doing. It makes no sense. But the landowner says, don't I have a right? 
You see, doing this made no sense to anyone except the landowner whose vineyard this is. It seemed right and it made sense to him. And besides, it's what he wanted to do. And he had the right and the power to do it, and so he did. That's how God works most of the time, using paradox and irony to display his glory, his sovereignty, and yes, his love and his grace. God delights indeed. He revels in the unexpected. He loves to surprise us, and he almost always surprises us with joy in the unfolding of his purpose for our lives. As Paul reminds us, God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we could hope or think beyond anything that we could imagine. What we expect to happen often doesn't, and what we would never expect is often exactly what does happen. Why is that? As we study the Bible and read more about the way God works, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read these words, God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose things that are powerless, to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And this landowner chose to pay the very last workers the same amount of money that he paid to the very first workers. And he also chose to pay those last workers first. William Cowper perhaps observed it best. He said, God moves in mysterious ways. He has wonders to perform. God often arranges unlikely and very surprising outcomes. And this is illustrated throughout Scripture. It's small wonder that the words we read just before Jesus' story are the same words we read at the end of the story. The first will be last and the last will be first. This is, after all, a story of a great reversal. It's a story about Things that happen in the reverse order than we would expect. Surprise, that's God's way. And I also want to note, look at verse 15. Here is the heart of the problem, is it not? In this passage we're looking at this morning, the landowner asks the protesting workers this question. Are you envious because I am generous? That's an excellent question. And I'm afraid we know the answer. These workers are envious. They are resentful. These workers are bitter because envy is at the heart of so many of our problems today. Wanting to have what someone else has. Or not wanting someone else to have what they have because we can't have it. Despising someone else's success and happiness. Being unable to rejoice with those who rejoice. How much easier is it for us to weep with those that weep and it is for us to rejoice with those who rejoice because of envy. Envy is the root of much division and controversy and heartache in our world today. It infects the church as well as society. The great Bible expositor Matthew Henry wrote, Envy is on likeness to God, who is good and does good and delights in doing good. It is a direct violation of both the two great commandments at once, both that of love for God in whose will we should always acquiesce, and love for our neighbor in whose welfare we should always rejoice. Secondly, also notice, not just God's ways, but God's compassion. Look at verse 6. We read here that at the eleventh hour, at around 5 p.m., the owner, who has already gone out previously at 9 a.m., noon, and again at 3 p.m., seeking workers, he's gone out three times before, looking for workers, and he returns to the marketplace a fourth time. 
That's the unemployment office of Jesus' day. He comes one final time. He comes back to the marketplace. And we read that he found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? Now notice their response. Notice it. They said to him, Because no one has hired us. They did not say, Because we'd rather not work. They didn't say, Because we'd prefer the life of the unemployed. They didn't say, Because to tell you the honest truth, we're lazy. And we just don't like work. And we're hoping that no one hires us. We've been hiding. No one has hired us. That's the simple and direct answer to the question. No one has hired us. And who knows why they haven't been hired. Maybe some were out of shape. Some were too fat. Some may have been too old. Some may have had health problems. Some incapacity, maybe. Some limitation. Some perhaps were deemed too young. Others may have been thought too weak or scrawny. But... Potential employers, for whatever reason, didn't hire them. And so we have here the overlooked workers. They are ignored. They are passed over. They are rejected. They are considered unworthy of investment. They are considered unworthy of time. They are considered unworthy of much attention. When I was a kid growing up in gym class, not being the most athletic student, in fact, quite removed from that category, tall for my age and awkward and skinny and uncoordinated, and not much better now, I dreaded the times when the gym teacher would appoint two team captains, my peers, and they would start choosing up teams from among their classmates for a game of soccer. And I'd say to myself, oh boy, I can still remember the fear and the panic as the pool got smaller. And as other kids would whisper to the team in the, in the captain's ears, pick him, pick him. Now, get that one over there, pick him, he'd be good. I didn't want to be the last one picked. I didn't want to be the one that nobody wanted, but somebody had to take. I almost always escaped that humiliation, but just barely. There were usually one or two kids left. Still in the circle. Unchosen, unwanted. At least I comforted myself that I wasn't last. And that's what happened in this story. These are the leftover workers, the unwanted losers of the labor force. The ones no one picked. The ones that no one else cared about. The ones nobody wanted on their team. They had no hope. They couldn't help themselves. The situation was beyond their control. They just stood around idle all day long. No help, no hope. Pitiful rejects, their spirits sank along with their prospects, and their self-worth took a pounding. You ever felt like that? You ever been in that situation? You ever known someone in that situation? And they were all ready to just totally give up. Nothing was going to change until, until the owner came back. The owner came back, and that made all the difference. This owner didn't hire these guys on to work at the vineyard for just one hour because he needed them. He surely didn't. But he knew that they needed him. And he had compassion on them. He took pity on them and he hired them. He gave them a job. He reached out and he helped them. He gave them hope. He gave them value. He gave them self-worth. He offered them a future. He smiled that humble, aw shucks, Jimmy Stewart smile and said, well, come on, then. I've got a vineyard that needs tending. And off they went to the vineyard, all of them. John tells us in his first letter, this is what real love is. It's not our love for God. It's God's love for us in sending his son to be the way to take away our sins. You see, we're all sort of like these five o'clock workers, you and me. These 11 o'clock, these 11th hour workers. 
Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, but God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. And while we're still standing around at the end of the day without hope, without help, dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to find salvation and unable to save ourselves through Christ, God reached down and He lifted us up out of the miry clay that we were sinking into and He set us upon the rock of His eternal love. Where are your accusers? You remember that story? Where are your accusers? Jesus stared with loving tenderness into the eyes of the frightened young woman. Probably only a teenager. She slowly looked around. They were all gone. Jesus smiled. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And a new life and a second chance was begun. It was a moment of grace, a moment of love and forgiveness. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how He could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. But for these late entry workers, the best was yet to come. We've seen God's ways in this story. We've seen His unusual actions, His unusual methods and purposes. And we've caught a glimpse of His great love. But I want you to notice with me what we observe from this story about God's grace. God's grace. When quitting time came in this story, the landowner asked his foreman to call up the workers who were hired last, the 5 o'clock, 11th hour guys. They were probably hanging back. It was not the usual customary procedure. It was normal to pay the first workers first, but remember, this is a story about a great reversal. In verse 9, notice what it says. Each one of these last workers received a denarius. And when they received their pay, these last workers couldn't believe their eyes. It was a denarius, a full day's wage. How unexpected, how exciting, how overwhelming. I bet their eyes welled up with tears, their hearts filled with gratitude. They couldn't believe it. What a surprise, how astonishing, how happy they were, and what an act of incredible generosity and kindness on the part of this landowner. He didn't even need to hire these guys. They've only worked a single hour in the coolest, easiest part of the day, and now he's giving them a full day's wage. What extravagant grace this landowner has shown these workers. But notice in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It tells us that when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. They were upset. They grumbled at the landowner, verse 11 tells us, and, says the, and, and say these words to the landowner. These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. You have made these equal to us. These 11th hour workers, you've made them the same. You've treated them the same. Yes, he has. And that's the amazing grace of God. You have made them equal to us. In this, these protesting workers were unmistakably correct. All the workers were treated equally by the landowner. They all received the same. They all received what they were promised. And it reminds us of what Paul wrote to the Galatians. You were all baptized into Christ. And so you were all clothed with Christ. 
This means that you all are the children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, in Christ, there is no difference between Jew and Greek, slave and free person, male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all the same in Christ. You have made them equal to us. Yes, he has, and that's his grace. God is no respecter of persons. He plays no favorites. He has no pets. His grace is displayed to all, and each of us and all of us are just sinners saved by his matchless grace, so abundant and so free. We are all the equal recipients of it. Praise God for that. The last workers, those who entered the vineyard at 5 p.m., were paid the same as the ones who went out at 6 a.m. that morning. One could argue that these late workers had not earned all they were paid. And that's true. And neither have you. And neither have I. We haven't earned what we have received. That's the nature of God's wonderful grace. God saved you by His grace when you believe, we read in Ephesians. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done so that no one can boast about it. Works is not going to gain us eternal life. My friends, our salvation is all of grace and it is all of God. We must never forget that. The great Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end, so that when you and I have come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace, it must continue with grace, and it ends with grace, grace, wondrous grace. The guys who went to work at the 11th hour at 5 o'clock couldn't have earned a full day's wage even if they'd wanted to. The day was almost over. They wanted to work, but there was only one hour left. They hadn't earned it, but they received it. And you and I cannot earn our way into heaven. We can never be good enough to merit God's favor because grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor. That's what grace is. The difference between the late workers and the early workers is that the late workers got more than they ever expected and the early workers expected more than they got. And what a difference that expectation makes in each of us and in all of our relationships with others. It's a difference that defines our attitude toward life and our view of the world. Think of it. Our appreciation of God's grace spells out the difference between arrogance and humility. The difference between entitlement and gratitude. It's the difference between judgmentalism and understanding. Legalism and liberty. The difference between cruelty and sympathy. Or stinginess and generosity. It's the difference between self-righteousness and grace. Luke tells us the story about the evening when one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. 
when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. She is a sinner. A sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. I like that. Jesus, he didn't say anything. Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both. He canceled all of their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. That's right, Simon. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and I know they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown much love. But a person who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. An object lesson in grace, a moment of grace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, my friends, may we more fully appreciate the gift of God's grace to each of us. May you and I more carefully consider all that God through Christ has done for us. And as we grow deeper into that realization, as we make the bounty of God's undeserved favor more personal and more real in our hearts and in our minds, if we, as we meditate on it, as we dwell on it, as we continue with an attitude of gratitude in our hearts and minds for all that God has done for us, then may we be more willing to show grace to others. May those moments of grace multiply every day in our own lives. Nothing, nothing at all will more clearly mark us as Christians than the grace we display to others. We must not be just the recipients of God's grace, but the dispensers of His grace to all those around us every day. If you're here today without Christ, I want to say this to you. You can have Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You can pray right where you are and ask Him to come into your heart and to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You can experience His magnificent grace and salvation where you are. And He will come into your heart and into your life and save you and make you a new creature and your life will never be the same. I invite you to do that before you leave here today. And then tell someone about it. That you ask Christ to be your Savior. On April 26, 2008, the Western Oregon women's softball team played against Central Washington University in Ellensburg, Washington. During the course of the game, Western Oregon senior Sarah Tolowski hit the first home run of her college career. She dropped her bat and started to make her way around the bases. In the midst of all the excitement, she forgot to tag first base. When the first base coach brought the mistake to her attention, she quickly turned around. To everyone's horror, her right knee buckled. Crying, she tried her best to crawl back to the base. Tolowski's teammates were warned that if they touched her, she would be called out. 
The umpires also noted that if her coaches opted to call in a pinch runner, the home run would only count as a single. You can probably imagine the shock everyone felt then when Mallory Holtman, the opposing team's first baseman and career home run leader for Central Washington, turned to the umpire and said, Would it be okay if I carried her around the bases and she touched each bag? When the umpires gave their approval, Holtman and teammate Liz Wallace picked up Tolowski, crossed their hands beneath her, and carried her to second base. Once there, they lowered the injured player and gently touched her foot to the bag. They did the same thing for third base and home plate. The crowd erupted into a standing ovation. Western Washington went on to win the game, eliminating Central Washington from the playoffs. When later asked about the good deed, Holtman said the decision to help out her opponent was simple. She felt Tolowski deserved the home run because the ball cleared the fence. In her own interview, Tolowski said, It's amazing what they did. I hope I would do the same for her in the same situation. George Vesky, a writer who was there covering the game, said that what happened can only be described as a moment of grace. When we realize what Jesus Christ has done for us, when we realize that we had absolutely no hope of ever getting to heaven on our own, when we realize that he chose us before the beginning of the world, before the foundations of the world, the Bible says, then as we grow in appreciation for that, won't we be more gracious, more forgiving, kinder, to others? I hope so. I pray that we will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful parable that Jesus told. And Father, we, we don't want to be like the early workers. We want to be like those last workers who were so grateful that they had a chance to work even for an hour and so appreciative of what they received. Help us, Father. To have an attitude like they had. Help us not to have an attitude of how come God hasn't done this for us. Father, help us to be more deeply appreciative every day that we live for all you've already done for us and all that you're going to do. We are so undeserving. We do not merit, Father, your grace, but we are thankful for it. Bless us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.